about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time we're taking a look at Captain America the Winter Soldier released in March 2014 when if you preferred you could have gone to see Ken Loach's historical drama Jimmy's Hall, Martin Scorsese's New York Review of Books documentary The 50 Year Argument or Jennifer Anderson and Cake instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and here's what I had to say about Captain America the Winter Soldier when I live-tweeted my Marvel Cinematic Universe rewatch. A bit of a step down from the first, and again possibly a tiny bit too long, but still another solid instalment helped enormously without Black Widow being out of character, and Captain America's to-do list being amusing without being ironic. That's what I had to say about it though, and joining me to give his thoughts on Captain America the Winter Soldier is writer Stephen O'Brien. Stephen, where can people find you? People can find me at, at Stephen O'Brien on Twitter, or they can find my blog at meaninglessinsights.blogspot.com. Okay, well, before we go any further, Stephen, what happens in Captain America the Winter Soldier? Captain America, Black Widow and Falcon join forces to uncover a conspiracy within S.H.I.E.L.D. while being tracked by a mysterious assassin known as the Winter Soldier. Okay, well, how much did you know about Captain America and about the Winter Soldier before you saw this? Well, I think like you, Tim, growing up, I was a big comics fan, particularly DC and Marvel. I used to buy a range of, you know, a mixture of the UK and US Marvel comics, especially. I think if you had to take my side of the DC versus Marvel argument, I think I'm more on Marvel. So I was certainly very aware of Captain America, not to the degree I knew the very story arcs very closely, but in terms of the origin and the point of Captain America, I was aware of that. I was less aware, at least from the comics, of the Winter Soldier concept, but having picked a few things up in recent years, have not seen the films until recently, I kind of understood what the Winter Soldier was. Well, before we go on to the film itself, I'm just going to ask something, because I'm fairly sure you're one of the only people I know who's seen the 70s Captain America TV movies. I think what's really made me think of those films was while I was re-watching this, I noticed that they feature him riding a motorbike a lot, which obviously was a feature of those two very strange films. And so, do you remember seeing them? And what are your memories of them? That's right, Tim. A long time ago. <laughs> I imagine probably your memories are about as unimpressed as mine are. Yeah, I remember at the time being really excited to see it when it came on the TV schedules. But yeah, even at a young age, it probably wasn't quite what I expected to be. And I think obviously some of the technical restraints of filming Captain America were probably obvious to me back at the time even. Well, yeah, they really don't suffer from any of those restraints now because I think what we should talk about first is the two massive set pieces in this, which is the car chase where they first really encounter 
encounter the Winter Soldier, whose identity we'll come on to in a minute, which goes on for a good long while, and there's bits of it where I can't work out how they did that. And also, the fight in the lift, when it's slowly becoming apparent that Hydra have infiltrated S.H.I.E.L.D., and they're trying to take out Captain America. That's an amazing sequence, and I know I said earlier that I thought it was slightly overlong, but really, those scenes are both extended scenes, and they justify every minute that they're on screen. Yeah, I mean, those two set pieces, and obviously there are other set pieces, you know, like the boat sequence at the start, and clearly the climactic scenes as well. But those two set pieces you've outlined there were the ones that really stood out for me. I think if we take the car chase, first of all, I think where that opens up from Nick Fury being sort of, you know, surrounded by obviously the fake police and they're trying to get into his car. That was very tense. It was very well done. I think the tension is undercut by some of the wisecracks that Nick Fury comes out with. But that scene, it's spectacular. I mean, I think the cinematography was very visceral. The camera swoops around and swings around, almost placing you in the very situation. I think the reliance on practical effects rather than CGI really comes out in that scene as well. I could feel my stomach tensing up when I was watching it. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, I've got plenty more to say about all of that. One thing I'll just add in that you've brought me on to there, which is obviously this was directed and mostly written by the Russo brothers, who've done some of the absolute best Marvel films. But one thing I didn't know until recently was he mentioned the gags, the wisecracks, and Nick Fury comes out with. There's a lot of good gags in this. And Nick Fury also repeats the line about last time I trusted somebody I lost an eye which has a great payoff in one of the films down the line and apparently it was basically they had the basic script and they went to Chris McKenna who was one of the writers on the sitcom that they worked on called Community which I hope everyone listening to this has watched Community if you haven't go and watch it now it's just come on Netflix it's one of the best sitcoms has ever been literally they brought him in to put some good gags in and I think that was really important that you know that division of labour I think really shows in the script that you know you've got people working on making a solid action film somebody working on putting good gags into that I think that's a really important thing the whole build up to both of those scenes is basically the plot of this it's a long standing thing that's been building since the early days of the film ever since kind of really since the events of Captain America the First Avenger Hydra have been very slowly infiltrating S.H.I.E.L.D. and building their strength until they reach a point where they can not just take over S.H.I.E.L.D. but take out all of their enemies around the world One thing that maybe a lot of people don't know about was in the week this went on general release in America, a couple of days before it, there was an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. where, cutting a long story short, the first season of that is basically about three young new recruits to S.H.I.E.L.D. who are kind of left out a bit, sort of finding their way. And as a consequence of all of that, in this episode, they find out that information is being leaked to... They're not quite sure it's Hydra at that stage. And it's a really tense episode where the suspecting Agent May who obviously isn't the leak. Anyone who's ever seen Agent Shield will know that because she's got a mysterious encrypted hotline, which later turns out is to Nick Fury. And slowly through that episode, they realise that something is seriously amiss and it suddenly becomes apparent that it's Hydra. Imagine if you'd seen that, not knowing what's going to be in the film, and then gone to see the film at the weekend, and then the next week's episode picks up on what happens to them while this Hydra plot's going on. And I don't think... 
the TV series. I mean, they all tie into the extent with the films. I don't think they've ever tied in that closely to it. But what happens in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is on a much smaller scale to what happens in this film because you find out the full extent, the full horror of what they're up to. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, Tim. I think, you know, obviously, I haven't seen those episodes in question, but I like the fact that, you know, in the Marvel Universe, and particularly having a show like Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., that you can do that kind of cross-channel storytelling. I think that's really good. And obviously, these two episodes will add sort of some depth into what's outlined in the film. I think the plot around Hydra, I think, is fascinating because with with these three uh, specialised aircraft, you know, basically, these are kitted out so that basically Hydra can take out something like 200 or 300 million people in one fell swoop, almost like a selective genocide. And as you say, for Hydra to take out people they consider enemies or threats or even feature threats to Hydra, I, I think is quite prescient, really, in terms of some of the things going on in the world today. Well, yeah, that's one thing that really struck me watching it again now was you know i am inclined to worry about the exchange of information and so on that's you've known me for a long time you know that's the case but even in 2014 i probably wouldn't have thought that the plot of this because basically they devise an algorithm to see who's a threat to hydra i would not have thought that would be so close to reality by now which is a tad disconcerting but that brings me round to one of the most discussed scenes in the film which is it's not even the main protagonist because again the winter soldier who we'll come back to in a bit but just Jasper Sitwell, who is ostensibly a S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, he's actually a Hydra agent, who prior to this had been in several of the films, had been in some of the one-shots, he'd been in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. quite a bit as well. He is in the first of those two episodes, which is a lovely bit of crossover. When they confront him, Captain America, Black Widow and Falcon, on a rooftop, he launches into quite a smug explanation of the algorithm, and he suddenly starts naming characters that hadn't appeared yet. I mean, he mentions Bruce Banner and so on, but he mentions Stephen Strange, who at that point, they were planning the Doctor Strange film, and they were negotiating with Benedict Cumberbatch, which gives rise to, I think, a joke we're going to mention later on, but also starts mentioning people in vague terms who it's never quite been confirmed who they were. I mean, one of them, the TV anchor in Cairo, was quite obviously Moonlight, and now they are doing a Moonlight series Disney Plus. The other one, I think it's, isn't it High School Valedictorian Iowa? And people speculated on that quite a lot. The general consensus is it's Amadeus Cho, who's a more recent character. He's kind of like a teenage genius who can emulate other people's abilities just through knowledge. And it's quite possible because, as we'll find out in a later film in this phase, his mother does appear in one film, but what's happened to him since, I don't know. But that is quite an interesting scene because it shows their thinking ahead and try to plant the idea of other characters being out there in people's minds. I think some of that level of detail that you're able to do when you've invested, you know, in a massive film and TV sort of environment, I, I think is, is really good. And I think one of the things that Marvel seems to do really well is make full use of that multi-platform. I was kind of just expecting a standard superhero movie, really, to be honest with you. I kind of vaguely knew what The Winter Soldier was. What I wasn't expecting was kind of a full-blown conspiracy thriller, which, again, totally blew me away. I wasn't expecting that, and I think it was so well done, kind of wrapped up in a superhero movie. And I think one of the things that really sold it for me was the fact that Robert Redford was in it. Never mind the fact that this film apparently was influenced, or one of the influences for this film was Three Days with the Condor, which actually stars Robert Redford. I think the thing for me is, as soon as I saw 
saw him in the film, the only thing to himself is anybody who thinks this is just a superhero movie would surely give pause of thought when Redford turns up. And I think he really adds something to the film. You sort of think, well, actually, Robert Redford tends to pick his projects quite carefully. He doesn't tend to appear in any old tat. So obviously his being in it for me was almost like an extra seal of approval. I thought his scene at the end where he was almost trying to justify what Hydra are trying to do in terms of this kind of what I call selective genocide was quite chilling. He played it so well. But for him, this was acceptable to do. And obviously to any sane thinking person, it clearly isn't. So I think his presence added a lot to it as well. Yeah, I think that's quite an important thing because I think this is the point at which this is the first film they did the veers away from just being a superhero film because in the first phase they pretty much are even including thor but in the second phase there's three films that do try to still do just that it doesn't quite work because it's all just more of the same but then you get guardians of the galaxy which is both a brilliant sci-fi film and a brilliant comedy ant-man which is a crime caper and this, which, like you say, it's like something that you would have seen in midweek on BBC One, film of the week, <laughs> that you're allowed to stay up for, would be some kind of 70s spy political thriller like that. And I think this is basically just fits into that completely. And what I really like is that the cast really, really seem to relish the opportunity to do something a bit different. Focusing on the main three, Chris Evans apparently, when he read the script for this, he went away and he learned modern combat techniques because he wanted to without actually putting it all into his performance to have Captain America as somebody who was getting used to the present and would have studied you know would have trained in the modern sense and he wanted that to be a physicality as well as in the dialogue and Scarlett Johansson makes some really interesting choices because basically she's not being Black Widow for a large part of the film she's being Natasha and her change of character is really interesting she's a lot more cynical witty laid back it's uncomfortable clear whether she has some kind of physical relationship with Steve Rogers or not I think that's quite ambiguous I wasn't sure what you made of that but I think it's implied that there's some what we used to call hanky-panky between them (laughs) I think I mean I mentioned Robert Redford's performance but I think Scarlett Johansson is the best thing in this the script gives us something to really work with different from beating people up and I think she really delivers on that I think you say there's that cynicism there's that confidence there's that kind of super cool bit but then every now and again she just gives a glimpse of vulnerability and I think that's really good and I think she does it in just the right way there is a temptation in a lot of media for heroic figures just to purely be heroic particularly in superhero films I always think back to Doctor Who particularly with Peter Davison's years where he would often be berated by cyber leaders and teleliptals around being vulnerable but that was almost a strength for Peter Davison I know this is the Doctor Who podcast so I'll end it there but I felt she came across better and she came across stronger almost by being able to show just that little chink of vulnerability every now and again. I think it really added to her character and I think it really adds to the film. And it's also the introduction of Anthony Mackie as Sam Wilson, the Falcon. He makes some interesting choices as well because I'm fairly certain because Sam's still a very military character throughout all of the films that he was cast on the basis of his performance in The Hurt Locker, which is a brilliant performance, but he counted to start with, Sam is the only character that seems to be really concerned overall about Steve Rogers as a person. I mean, in one later film, he expresses concern about where Steve's living at that point, which you know, nobody else seems to bother about to that extent. But there is that relationship with them that leads to their sort of jokey catchphrase, on your left, which is repeated quite a lot. 
in this film and later makes a brilliant appearance in Endgame but we won't spoil that for now but I think he really hits the ground running as somebody coming into a film that already has two stars and a third returning who we are just about to mention as well as that as kind of a second tier character as well because Falcon never really had his own comic he was an accessory to others really I think he really rises to the challenge there yeah I think Anthony Mackie you know really holds his own in this against obviously particularly the two other leads he's more than capable of playing you know with, with those two A-list actors the character comes across really well he really delivers that sense of loyalty as you say particularly to Steve Rogers he finds himself in, in this bizarre situation and he, he gives it everything he can it means so much to him as he does to Steve Rogers. And I think one important detail that doesn't really get picked up on, but is echoed in a couple of later things, is that Sam actually runs a veterans group, a kind of counselling support group, which Steve attends and he seems relatively comfortable compared to how he is in the rest of the film at it. It's interesting because later on, when Falcon is missing, he takes over that group. And also, it's echoed in The Punisher, the Netflix series, where the only time that Frank Castle actually seems at peace is one of the few people who knows who he is, is one of his old army unit buddies who now runs a veterans group. And while he doesn't participate in it, he drops by and watches from the doorframe sometimes and seems quite tranquil while he's there. And I think that's a deliberate nod to this. Again, that's an interesting facet to the character, but the character that we've got to mention now is the Winter Soldier, who is slowly revealed is actually Bucky Barnes, Captain America's missing sidekick from the Second World War. You don't find out the full extent of what happened to him in this film, but basically he appears to now be a Soviet agent with a cybernetic arm. I think it's a really good concept. I suppose in a film like this, you can't really delve into that too much because you can see, obviously, you know, Steve Rogers thought his friend was dead. He appears in modern day, as you say, with a robotic arm. Doesn't seem to know who he is. Wants to kill him. So obviously that kind of internal conflict of needing to stop this person but this person is his best friend and is obviously long mourn best friend. There was that scene near the start of the film in terms of Steve Rogers going to the museum and he's sort of thinking, actually, you know, that's his touch point with the past, with his past, because he's in this modern world and there's various references made to it. But in order for him to kind of touch the past and the life he used to have, he goes to the museum. It's really obvious. But I think that bit's done really well. Likewise, when Steve Rogers catches up with the elderly Peggy, I think that was a really poignant scene as well you know like that sort of differential between the aged Peggy and the young Steve Rogers and even Peggy refers to the life he could have had but certainly I think it's a really interesting concept to bring Bucky back and, and position him as an opponent I suppose I felt they could have gotten a bit more out of that emotionally. But again, you know, you've got a two hour film here and it, you know, it's predominantly an action film. It's a thriller. They're not going to dwell too much on that one. And perhaps given what happens at the end of the film where, you know, the Winter Soldier walks off, maybe that's covered later on. Well, it certainly is, but I won't spoil any of it for you now. But okay. that does really underline, I think, is a point that really needs to be praised about these films, which is while they're all interconnected, it's possible to watch every single one of them standalone. 
as well. I, mean, I always point to the fact that, you know, how many people who went to see Infinity War would have seen all of those films? How many of them, say, who've just seen the main ones would have known who Doctor Strange was or the Guardians of the Galaxy? You watch that film, it introduces them in very easy terms. You know who they all are straight away. And in this, you don't even need to have seen the first Captain America film because, like you say, it starts with an exhibition spelling out that it was a wartime hero that got frozen in ice and suspended animation and then revived and came back and there's a big wall of basically photographic newsprint blow-ups of Bucky explaining who he was and that he went missing. There's film footage of Peggy from I think the 50s reflecting on how much she misses him. That just tells you all you need to know to be able to watch this film. You don't need to know about Black Widow's backstory, the Falcon is introduced in it and Nick Fury, Samuel L. Jackson the second he walks in the room <laughs> he's, he's introduced himself just with his presence so it explains straight away who S.H.I.E.L.D. are and who Hydra are. You didn't need to see anything else with Jasper Sitwell in. You know he's a nerd-do-well from the second he appears. And I would also highlight that this is one of the many things I noticed me watching all the films that you sometimes think because of the way, you know, it's arranged, because you've got this weird interconnected standalone thing, you sometimes think things were referenced in films when they weren't. And I could have sworn Brock Rumblow, Crossbones, is another leading Hydra agent within S.H.I.E.L.D., I thought he appeared in one of the early films, but he doesn't. This is his first appearance. And Frank Grillo is brilliant. He just gives a fantastic evil performance at him. Without even having to so much as move an eyebrow, he just conveys malevolence, but in a very assured, punch-happy way. And I think you're right, because obviously, you know, at the start of the film, he's positioned as obviously an ally of Steve Rogers. And obviously he seems the, the strong, reliable type. And then obviously he gets in the lift. And you mentioned the fight in the lift before, which obviously, you know, when people start piling into the lift, I'm thinking it's going to be a kickoff here. <laughs> and um, and I think that scene is so well directed and so well built up because I could feel myself tensing up, feeling worried for Steve Rogers, thinking, oh, my God, he's he's in this. But then I'm sort of thinking, are they really going to do a fight in the lift? And I thought... Good on you, boys. Good on you, Russo brothers. Just the audacity of doing that and the way it's executed is terrific. It's just, it's a brilliant scene. Be Captain America, Steve. touch in this film is when Steve Rogers first meets Sam and he mentions that he's listening to Marvin Gaye's Trouble Man soundtrack. Steve pulls out a list that he's added things to that he needs to catch up on. I think that is lovely because it is such a, it isn't a comedy list, it's not a random list, it's just things that people might have mentioned in conversation where he thought that sounds interesting because it ranges from the Berlin Wall up and down to Nirvana Brackets Band and 
Rocky with Rocky 2 question mark in brackets. What I didn't know until recently was when the film was first released, that list was actually changed slightly for different markets to get different kinds of appropriate references in for, say, France or Italy or whatever. The original UK release version at the top of the list had Sherlock, (laughs) as in the TV series, which is probably a deliberate joke because at that point, apparently, they'd earmarked Benedict Cumberbatch for Doctor Strange, but as anyone who knows anything about Doctor Who will know, he's someone who's very resistant to celebrity. And famously, he turned down Doctor Who because he said, I don't want my face on lunchboxes. He publicly said he wasn't interested in playing Doctor Strange around this time. And so they're obviously negotiating with him. And so that was probably on the list of some kind of <laughs> nod to him. You know, I would say, come on, mate. <laughs> but the other great thing was that apparently they were originally going to have a separate edit of it for Ireland, but they ran out of time where the list would have had Father Ted. Absolutely brilliant. I think that's great. And there were some other nice touches in this. I mean, I love the fact you had Jenny Agatha kicking arse at the end. The fact that Alan Dale is in it. I almost knew Alan Dale would be in it before the scene came on because obviously he's kind of the market in sort of um you know american or australian statesman in u.s tv and film fair play to him he's done really well i think one of the other things that i really appreciated was the arnim zola supercomputer yeah because toby jones is superb as armin zola and again you don't even need to know that he was in the first captain america film because he's introduced as a computer simulation of a scientist which is weirdly terrifying where you know when you look at Toby Jones he's not the most terrifying person in the world but the way it answers back to them as an artificial intelligence and it picks up on some plot strands that are explored in the Agent Carter TV series and also it's in the old building of the Strategic Scientific Reserve which is featured in that series which if you've watched that and then you see it deserted that is really eerie it's a really creepy scene and I had a bit of a Proustian rush when I saw all the reel-to-reel computer terminals but you're right I think Toby Jones as Zola play that really well really sort of unsettling especially just before the whole thing's blown up and I think there's always that sense of, there's always a sense in this film of forward motion these guys are on the run they're trying to get to things but you always get the sense that even if it's off screen there's always somebody right behind them and that really gives that, that movement that sort of almost perpetual motion Well it's driving towards future films without people really realising as well because I mean the two major things in here are it does introduce Sharon Carter who's the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent to you find out much more about who she really is later on she's just somebody who kind of joins in the fight and flirts with steve rogers a bit in this there's also a hint towards something that is glimpsed in ant-man in hank and janet pym's past that, that's a really weird thing like you say it's full of analog computer equipment but they built it in the 70s first of all to capture basically the consciousness of this sinister nazi scientist who'd pretended to work for the americans under operation paperclip but he was actually furthering hydra's aims all the time that it was working towards building this algorithm before these algorithms even have a name at that point i don't know that is really creepy the fact that this massive plot that they nearly succeed with is founded on creaky old equipment yeah absolutely and i think it was a really nice touch in a very modern movie the film really builds up to what you would expect a really big and well executed climax obviously a lot of this now compared to the rest of the film which was largely practical effects does have a reliance on cgi 
but it's so well done. It's a really fitting climax to the film. And obviously, at this point in time, earlier in the film, the Winter Soldier starts to get some of his memory back. And obviously, at some point in the film, after Steve tries to sort of bring him round, he starts to remember fragments of his past. But then, thanks to Robert Redford, his mind's wiped again. So he goes into, obviously, face off against Steve Rogers and stop him. And I think, again, this is a really good scene at the end. Once the ship's been swapped and everything's going wrong, the Winter Soldier catches up with Steve Rogers. But Steve Rogers almost refuses to fight him because he's his friend. And I thought that was just a nice little touch in that kind of the humanity of their friendship. And obviously a suggestion of the kind of upstanding person Steve Rogers is. And there's that great montage at the end where it catches up with what happens to a lot of the characters characters next and with us everything from Maria Hill from S.H.I.E.L.D. is now working for Tony Stark all the way to I mean this is one of the creepiest bits of the whole film is Gary Shandling as that senator who was kind of like a comic figure in the Iron Man films he was like the target of all of Tony Stark's jokes when he had to appear before Congress there's a bit where he encounters Sitwell and whispers Hail Hydra to him and that's really really creepy and he gets arrested in that closing montage which is a, a nice cheerful note to end on I think but there's two post credit scenes in this the first of which is nodding towards an upcoming film where it's one of the few remaining pockets of Hydra that's left basically plotting to go ahead with some research they were doing and it reveals what appears to be Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver in kind of test subject cells and the other one is a tremendous one which is one of those ones they do really well where it's really short and there's no real dialogue to it and it's all just expressed with a look or whatever and it's Bucky Barnes kind of in the same disguise as Steve Rogers went round the Captain America exhibit in reading his own display boards it's almost a flash of guilt goes across his face and Sebastian Stan I think is a tremendous actor I mean obviously he's known for a lot of comedy films but apparently in preparing for this he just watched a lot of very serious Cold War documentaries to get the right tone for Bucky as the Winter Soldier I think he does serious very well again I think it's a poignant scene and I think obviously it's a poignant scene for the fact there's no dialogue and of course he's on his own so there wouldn't necessarily be any but again I sort of took that expression on his face as kind of a a growing realisation of what he's lost. He he lost his life. You know, he lost the life he knew in the 1940s, the life he's lived in whatever capacity, you know, despite mind wipes, whatever. Again, I think you get a sense of reading about the person he was, a good person, an inherently good person, and the contrast between the persona he's been led into acting out. Just one thing left for me to ask. Stephen, if you had a cybernetic arm, what would you use it for? I think if I had a robotic arm, I would make a remake of Sylvester Stallone's arm wrestling movie Over the Top. <laughs> it's a bit of a change of tone after Captain America's Winter Soldier, I'll say that much. Stephen, thank you, and Excelsior. Excelsior to you, Tim. If you've enjoyed this, don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks, including one on Captain America the First Avenger, and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.